Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Do you want to move closer? It feels... The room feels lopsided. <laughs> really lopsided. It's very empty on the east side. Everyone wants to be on the west side. So, good evening. It's a good evening. Don't tell anybody this, but it's nice when there's this many people. It's been um, so busy lately, and it feels a little quieter. It's a good evening. This evening. So when you're sitting, um, the quality of your breathing is really, really uh, important. And for those of you who practice yoga asana, we're used to taking our breath and manipulating it. And uh, when we're sitting in meditation, we're just creating so much space for the breath to just do whatever it needs to do. And uh, it's really a challenge um, because as soon as you notice your breathing, the first move is to change it somehow and shift it. And that's okay. You just notice that. And in noticing that and noticing that and noticing that, then the breath starts to just breathe by itself. And then the tendency when that happens is to just check out. Because usually when the breath is breathing by itself, we're sleeping. And actually it's one of the reasons why sleep is one of the hardest um, uh, hindrances. It's one of the hardest vrittis or fluctuations. Because usually when we feel sleepy, um, we either go to sleep, right? Or we have caffeine during the day. So it's like the one state we never work with, right? So it's the state that most of us in our daily life just can totally avoid. And um, 
So it's really important that as your breath starts to settle, that you watch that the attention is very, very alert. And as we were exploring in the asana class, that's why what's happening with the eyes is really important. So if you sit with the eyes um, half open, that when the field of your peripheral vision starts increasing, um, there's a sense of alertness in the pose. And as soon as we get tired, the field starts closing down. And uh, one of the things we're exploring in the asana also um, is just that, you know, there's this saying a lot of people talk about, you know, um, that that the eyes are looking at a point. And um, I think this is kind of a a poor technique or description of technique or cue. Because it's not that your eyes are looking at a point. The, The Sanskrit word is desha. It's that the the eyes are, the word desha means a field. So it's not that your eyes are looking at a point, it's just the eyeballs are settled at a point. But the vision is receiving the whole field. And as your peripheral vision stays wide, then there's space around your breathing. And I don't know if this makes sense to you. Does, it, does this make sense? Can you, can you feel that? So it's just that the eyes are still, but you're not staring at anything. That, that creates tightness or strain. And, um, and um, so the desha, the image of the field, is just received through the eyes. I was saying earlier that this is where you get the word Bangladesh. It's the, the field of Bangala. And um, so to take in a field is to take in everything everything, foreground and background. And um, the body has to be really alert to do this and also at ease. And uh, um, then this is uh, two of the limbs of yoga, just like that. It's pratyahara, which is the sense organs not grabbing anything. So in this case, it's just the eyes not going after anything, just receiving anything that comes through the visual field and being somewhat disinterested in it too. And um, it's also the uh, sixth limb of yoga, which is dharana, which is um, when uh, there's awareness of an object and um, it's okay. There's just space around it. And one of the most uh, compelling things about the teachings of Patanjali is that, uh, none of this is what we're supposed to talk about tonight, but I'll just, you know, about the teaching of Patanjali is that what you focus on is the vritti, is the fluctuation that gets in the way of receiving the field, rather than trying to get rid of the vritti or the fluctuation. This is really important. So the fluctuation that's showing up becomes the object. And then you see that the fluctuation has no Atman. It has no self. And then if you don't give the fluctuation a self, then you don't exist. And then um, that's the eighth limb of yoga, which is Samadhi. So our main practice at center of gravity is we practice Samadhi. And um, the practice of samadhi has a really good lineage. 
it goes all the way back to the elements. The sun and earth and water. Because they're all practicing samadhi too. So they're like the original teachers in this lineage. So when people say, what lineage are you? You just say, I'm in the, the lineage that traces back to the founder. <laughs> and then someone says, well, who's the founder? And you can just say, you know, rivers and forest. And um, someone says, well, how can I do that? You, you just meditate on the fluctuations, man. and like this is the most confusing thing is that as soon as we meditate on the vrittis then if the body is not at ease if the tongue's not released if the vision's not relaxed then we create vrittis of the vrittis which means that you give what you're noticing a personality or a self which builds a you that's then in relationship to it. And then you suffer, man. <laughs> I just came back from Vancouver. <laughs> it was sweet. It's really sweet. I just want to speak in Vancouver lingo the whole night. Okay, so um, uh, tonight we're talking, actually we're already talking about it, but the subject for tonight is commitment and flight. And um, in a way you actually don't even have to say commitment and flight. (laughs) You can just say commitment and everyone's already... Actually, it's built right into the word commitment. The etymology of the word commitment, it comes from two words. Uh, com, which is where you get the word community, which comes from the Sanskrit word sum, which is where you get the English word sum, S-U-M, which means to come together. Um, we have a soundtrack. <laughs> um, and the word mitter, the Latin word, um, uh, actually means to send. And I find this kind of an interesting etymological root. So calm means to draw in or to come together, and mater means to send. This is a nice way of thinking about commitment, isn't it? It has flight built into it. We could be more psychological, say, you know, giving and receiving, but I'm not sure. It's almost like the word commitment has a sense of departure built right into it. And um, when, when I first started studying, um, when I went, you know, some of you, I won't go into my whole biography, but, you know, I visited a lot of centers. <laughs> I did a lot of shopping. And actually, I still have only found very few uh, teachers that I really, you know, care to spend a lot of time with. Except, in a way, it's also not true, because when I first started practicing um, the thing that really struck me was uh, people who lived at centers and whose practice you could watch day in and day out. And they meditated and they bowed just like you know they were brushing their teeth. It was just what they did. And there was a sense of commitment that I really admired. 
And um, I didn't have that. I didn't have that when I first practiced because I think for me, especially when I first started meditating, I, when I went to sit, especially when I was alone, um, I was sitting because I wanted to get something. I wanted to get something out of it. And so it was like whatever was happening had a really strong self in it. And so I was really separate from what was happening. So I felt like I was meditating. Has anyone ever had this feeling? Like you're meditating and you're telling yourself that you're meditating. And then it's not going well. So then you talk to yourself about how it's not going well. And then the more you do that, the more you turn the meditation into this object over here that's really far away from you. And the fantasy in all that is trying to attain something. And the first instruction I ever heard, and I was just reminded of this uh, talking to Ronit this week, the first instruction I ever heard uh, for uh, meditation was to sit down with no gaining idea. To sit down with no gaining idea. (laughs) Try that. Try that. When I sit down, the first thing I notice is I want to be peaceful. I want to feel good. Man. (laughs) And then I'm not really committed. It's like when people say I'm open-minded. You know, usually people who are open-minded, they're open-minded towards what they want to be open-minded to. So when someone says, I'm really open-minded, you know, you can ask yourself, oh, I wonder what this person is open-minded to. It's like they have a repertoire of what they're open-minded to. And in a way, sometimes the work of, you know, psychotherapy, for example, is to notice where people are too open-minded. They may be too open-minded about something, and we have to kind of close some of that open-mindedness down to create a kind of spine there or a wall there so that they can be open-minded in other areas, too. And um, in meditation practice, we take it a step further, which is you're not just open-minded, but um, one expression is that the hand of thought just opens up. So it's not just that you're open-minded, but you, you see that the whole mind field is open. Mind, mind field. <laughs> um, And what changed for me in terms of cultivating commitment was one day I had this thought, everybody here comes in the morning and sits. And when I come to sit, on my way to sit, I'm thinking about how I'm going to sit. And I can feel like there's a me and there's this other me that's watching me walk into the room to go sit and then is going to talk to me about the meaning of the sitting or other people or so on. And then I had the thought, well, what if I just sit anyways? I know this sounds like such a simple thing to say, but maybe you can try this when you sit every day. In the morning, wake up and say, what if I just sit anyways? I feel really hungover. (laughs) What if I just sit anyways? I'm so busy today. 
what, what if I just sit anyways? And I didn't start this like whole dialogue, turning the meditation into an object, which is all a pattern of flight. You know? And then we're so busy in the meaning of what meditation is that we never experience what's underneath uh, meaning. So, um, I've copied over a hundred copies of this essay, so I assume everyone brought theirs, because they're all missing. Luckily, there's a few more, (laughs) but not much, so if you could share with somebody, that would be great. these perceptions as disturbing as they are? Do you remember that? We've read that paragraph, but I'd like to, I'd like to just go back over those two paragraphs we finished with yesterday. Lori, do you want to read? All of these perceptions as disturbing as they are? This reminded me, when I was a kid, this is what it was like like at Passover, every, there'd be like a, always a man at the head of the table telling you, could you read, starting in the third paragraph of this section, you know? That was before my Buddhist. I remember one time looking at my grandmother. In my family, we call grandmother's Bobby and grandfather Zadie. And when I first read about Bodhisattvas, <laughs> I used to call my grandmother Bubi Sattva. <laughs> really. Anyways, all of these perceptions. Okay. All of these perceptions, as disturbing as they are, are in fact quite true. So when we bring them up, no one tries to talk us out of them. Old timers in the community may become defensive, but they can't really disagree. Yet the truth of all this doesn't really account for what we're feeling, cheated and disappointed. The only thing that accounts for that is our inner pain. We were feeling for a moment better, redeemed, and now suddenly we feel even worse than when we came. And eventually we realize that imperfect though the community is, and it may even be worse than imperfect, it may be in some ways actually toxic. It's us, not it. That is the source of our present suffering. It can take a while to come to this, sometimes a very long time, if there are, as there have been in many communities of all religious traditions over the years, flagrant cases of betrayal by leaders or other important community members. But whether it comes soon or only after many years, and whether it causes are spectacular or quiet, 
it is something we have to come to on our own. Because when we're deeply disappointed with the community, it's hard for long-term committed community members to point out that it's our eye, not the visual object, that's cloudy. They can't tell us this because they know we won't hear it. They know that if they tell us this, they will only appear to us to be defending the status quo. And we will mistrust them for it. And besides, many of them don't understand that this is the case anyway. Many of them are themselves confused about the community and where it and they begin and end. So for all these reasons, the older members of the community tolerate us and our views. And there is very little they can do to help us through this stage. If we feel this sense of betrayal or disappointment acutely enough, and especially if a difficult personal incident happens to us when we are in the midst of it, we may very well leave the community in a huff, which happens, though seldom, and when it does, it's a real tragedy. If this doesn't happen, then it is likely that after enough time goes by, we will realize that's what's really going on. Somebody else want to read back there? Mike? Now we begin to get the picture that there's a lot that's been going on in our lives for a long time that we were simply unaware of. We came to the community to find peace, to live in a kind of utopia, expecting that that, that will make up for the fact that we ourselves aren't entirely perfect human beings. Perhaps in this utopia we'll become enlightened and our problems will end. Few of us actually think these thoughts this boldly, but in fact most of us have some fuzzy and unexamined version of them in our minds as we arrive. But instead of this scenario, we find that we're living in an extremely flawed community, and that far from being not entirely perfect, we are actually a raging mass of passion, confusion, bitterness, hatred, and contradiction. And a state of anything remotely like enlightenment, or even a little peace of mind, is very far away. In other words, we're much worse off now than when we began. So we have to acknowledge that the job we've undertaken is much larger than we thought. It's going to take quite a while. And part of what we need to do is to make up our minds that we're really going to do it, really going to roll off our sleeves and stay in it for the long haul, one or two or three thousand lifetimes. Rose? So we enter the third stage and we begin to explore honestly and without too much idealism the actual nature of our commitment to the practice and to the community. And this is a very difficult thing to do because now that we are really looking without too much distraction, we find many, we find many attitudes in ourselves and they're not always consistent with one another. We want to practice always, to take vows as a lay priest or, as a lay or priest practitioner, to devote ourselves completely to the path. There's absolutely nothing else to do. Many people feel these things sometimes, perhaps rarely or perhaps on a regular basis. But how strongly do we feel them? And how do we know whether or not to act on them? But even if we feel a strong and clear sense of commitment, there may be at some time many other strong feelings, 
We want also to get married, have a house, a career, children. We want to travel, to serve others more directly. Or maybe we're just restless, or we know somehow this isn't the place or time. We need to go to another tradition or another teacher or group, and so on and on and on. This is really a difficult stage, and it could go on for some time. In fact, it should go on for some time. If we make a determination too soon about how our commitment really is, it's probably wrong. We probably haven't listened to ourselves enough. There are a lot of cases of people who leave at this stage and really shouldn't have. And there are cases, too, of people who make commitments that they regret having made. So it's good to take our time and to seek advice from teachers and other senior and junior students. The advice doesn't help all that much. <laughs> In fact, we've got to come to what we come to on our own. Sometimes following the view of someone else whom we, we admire can be a big problem, and our elders have to be careful to be sensitive to what they're hearing from us, and not to impose their wishes and views on us. Nevertheless, the advice can serve as a useful and probably, probably a necessary mirror. Quinn? The fourth stage are called commitment and flight, which sounds like an oxymoron, but is, I think, a good name for it. In this stage, we have come to find solid ground under our commitment. We accept, accept our wobbling in human mind and know now that underneath it there could be finally something solid and reliable, although we are not often out of touch with it. Looking back, we can see how much we've changed since we entered the practice. We see how much we are the same too, of course, but the change <coughs> is apparent. We are more solid, we are calmer, we are quieter in our spirit, and less apt to fly off the handle inside or inside. Not as solid or as calm or as quiet as we had hoped or expected to be, but we have by now given up the hope as unrealistic, and we are not more able to settle for how it actually is with us, and to find good or at least acceptable with a degree of joy. So we feel ready to make a commitment to the practice of any community. This commitment can only take one form, renunciation of one sort of or another, a giving up a self and a personal agenda. As we see the self and personal agenda don't, in fact, help us to get what we want and what we really need in our lives. The only cause suffering, the only cause suffering, as this becomes more and more apparent to us, we are more willing to enter into a serious commitment to the practice. In fact, after a while, we feel that without even choosing to do so, we have already done so. There isn't any other way. We are committed. We have already renounced our life. Here's where we can take on a responsible position and make a practical commitment to stay in the community for some time, or take initiative as a priest or a lay practitioner. We feel responsible for the community. Let's keep going. Barza? Uh, There's someone else on that? Inya? But as soon as we feel? As soon as we feel settled in our commitment, particularly if that commitment is marked by a particular event, such as an ordination or entering the monastery on a long-term basis, 
the demons of confusion return. Immediately our old interests and desires come back in force. Maybe we fall hopelessly in love the day before we are to go off to the monastery for an indefinite stay. Or maybe we find ourselves roaring drunk two days after ordination as a priest. Such things have actually happened and catch us quite off guard. We had thought we had the first thing figured out. But what we hadn't counted on was the fact that there were st still a fair number of unopened doors in our heart and the power of the commitment we are now we are now ready to make and have made is such that it violently throws open those doors and we are shocked at what we find inside. We are humbled by the sheer power of our own and therefore human passion. Humbled and shocked and amazed. We are reeling, perhaps for some time at this, more ashamed and confused than ever. It is unusual, I think, for people to enter that monastery for a long stay or to take ordination as a priest without suffering some version of this. It is in many cases a rude awakening. Sometimes our teacher and elders seem very knowing when this happens to us. Sometimes they even have a chuckle over it. This can either be comforting or maddening, depending on our temperament. At this stage, sometimes there literally is flight. People take off, disappear overnight, run off with a lover, leave the monastery in the middle of the night. But such things are becoming more rare. More often, it's an internal drama. You see it in people's faces, a kind of grim determination mixed with a very pure innocence, even if the person is middle-aged or older when this happens. The power and surprise of these feelings is enough to send any of us back to square one with almost no identity left. In fact, the work of this stage is the reconstitution of identity. And this is why we feel often like children now, like babies. And this, of course, feels wonderful and terrible at the same time. Because we thought we were grown up, we thought we were advancing. Um. I have nothing to say. So um, I, I would like it if you uh, turn to somebody beside you and um, maybe to share with them um, how commitment uh, arises in your practice and how maybe watching other people or reading texts or taking a precepts course or a retreat uh, makes you feel like you want to commit. Many of you here come every week, and there is a sense that um, you are committing to something, and maybe you don't even know what it is. Or maybe you see that other people have some steadiness in their life, and maybe some of you who've been here for a while um, see other people who've been here for a while and maybe it's inspiring to see that their commitment is increasing. And then uh, to reflect on that with your partner and what it means for you 
to come here more than once. Or just to wake up early in the morning and sit on your ass. (laughs) And then I want you, after you both shared the commitment part, just to take a few minutes to share about the flight. Share some of the ways that you take flight. And maybe it's taking flight and avoiding practice altogether. Maybe the taking flight is more subtle. Maybe you come here and it's mechanical. Oh, it's in iCal. I better just be there. (laughs) And you show up, but you're not really completely here. And maybe you're not really committed. You know, um, uh, actually a few of you here were, someone in our sangha got married and they asked me to officiate at the the wedding. And um, one of the things that we did together Uh, that I work with them on is for the vows, the wedding vows, before they make vows to each other, to make vows to themselves. Because when we make a commitment, although it seems like I'm making a commitment to you, or I'm making a commitment to this relationship, or I'm making a commitment to the Buddha, really what has to come first is the commitment you're making inwardly to yourself. So I just want you to share with someone about commitment. Uh, And then I also want you to share um, the flight and what for you uh, makes you run away. Okay? So uh, pick somebody uh, beside you who looks like they're committed. (laughs) You can see it in their face. 